All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks, band, and welcome again to our uh, church. As um, Spencer and Highland both said today, as they usually do, um, welcome. We're glad you guys are here. If you are visiting for the first time, special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us for our, our gathering. Um, we, I think Highland mentioned this before the song, but right now we are in a sermon series at, at our church through the summer, through Labor Day, on big questions. We're calling it big questions because we're preaching on questions that the church has given us to speak on. Uh, questions that really could come from a variety of angles. They're primarily theological or biblical, but they could be philosophical about our ministry at the church as well. And we have uh, enough through Labor Day, but uh, if you have a question, you can still email it in. It's uh, bigquestions at hiawathachurch.com. goes to me and Spencer, the two pastors here. We, we would love to still get it. We can at least reply to you or uh, maybe save it for, tuck it away in our back pocket for a future sermon or something like that too. That'd be great. So, uh, but big questions, one word at hiawathachurch.com. You can, or just put on your blue card or something like that or talk to us. That'd be great. We'd love to still get them. Uh, we're four weeks in now, and uh, today we're going to preach a question that um, kind of, in some ways, relates to last week because it's Old Testament heavy to some degree, but, um, which is kind of why we lumped them. So if you were here, you might see some crossover. But uh, the question has to do, there are a variety of questions here from one person, but he asked a few of them that surround uh, geographical place name etymology in the Bible. So all you Bible nerds rejoice uh, in, in that one. But uh, the, the uh, questions we actually received are, just to unpack that, uh, exactly what that means here. The actual questions we got, paraphrasing some of this, but uh, was this. In, uh, in the Old Testament, places are being named all the time for stuff that happened at that place, or the Bible is just careful to note their etymological meaning. By the time we get to the New Testament, this uh, practically, or practice really is not mentioned much that I can recall. What is the significance of this? Why the change? Or is it still going on today uh, and in the New Testament with me simply unaware? Uh, so if you weren't uh, aware this, uh, that this is even a thing for the Bible at all, early on in the Bible we see that this is a value of God's. God values working geographically. He values the motif of location on a variety of levels. We'll talk about that today for background. It's not the precise angle on the question, but we'll talk about it for those of you especially who are uh, newer to this idea, maybe brand new to it uh, today, but it's a value of God's to, to choose to tell the story, his story of salvation this way, to assign symbolic meanings to things like places and cities and mountains and rocks and, and things like this. We're going to focus on uh, the places idea because that was the focus of the question today, and just for the sake of time, because it just takes way too long to talk about all of those, but to assign symbolic meaning to places is uh, just a thing for God, and it's important. It should be for us as well because we're made in his image. And because he's symbolic and full of truth at the same time, uh, we should at least be equipped to read the Bible that way so that we get the most out of it. Uh, it might not be quite our bent towards viewing the world, having the worldview that's heavily symbolic, but uh, we should at least uh, value it because God does. Uh, one quick example of this, if you were, again, if you weren't aware this is a thing in the Bible, in Genesis 21, early on, Genesis being the first book of the Bible, uh, Abraham, who is this uh, kind of initial person God covenants with on a personal level to begin to reveal his plan of salvation through to the whole world, ultimately bringing the Messiah Christ through, uh, bloodline-wise and otherwise. But um, in Genesis 21, Abraham, uh, it's an Old Testament narrative, he covenants with a man named Abimelech, who are a, a, a bit odds prior to this, and he makes peace with him at a place that is later called, the Bible says, Beersheba, which means well of seven or well of the oath because seven ewe lambs were given as a peace offering of sorts between them. So uh, it's kind of strange, right? At one level, you can be reading that and saying, well, it's kind of strange that happened at all, but then why 
Why name the place after that event at all? But then even beyond that, why does the Bible uh, take time to note this? Uh, God is not a God of randomness, remember. He's a God of order, and he plans these things out. He's a God of, pays attention to details all over the place. And so why does God, why does God do that? I'm actually not going to answer that one today, so I'm just going to let that hang out there. Uh, if, yeah, if you wondered that, just maybe you can write that on your card and ask us that. I'll be a sermon for some other, some other day. But just as an example of how early on God is already uh, writing this into the story. He's saying, this happened, and we're naming this place, this mountain, this town, this city, after it because of something significant that happened here, uh, ultimately theologically. So there are dozens and dozens of examples of stuff like that in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and many more when you factor in name meaning. So a lot of times, uh, God will rename people for a significant, significant theological reason, or just note the name of someone like Noah, say, in Genesis, whose name means rest, and that kind of uh, correlates to the idea of God bringing rest through him and what he was aligned with in, in the Old Testament. So anyway, just a word here on the importance of symbolism broadly, and I, I could have said this uh, uh, kind of prefacing almost anything we'd preach on symbolically, but for those of you who are especially new to this, I mentioned before, some of you are going to more naturally gravitate to this kind of thing. If you're new to the Bible, maybe it's almost a good thing because you'll just almost take it. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, if you have some more baggage, like a lot of us do, if we've been Christians for a while, uh, or whatever, it can be a little bit harder sometimes, but our personalities play into that, what we've been taught about the Bible prior, we're all colored by our past, and so some of you will more naturally gravitate to this, and that's fine. Some of you might consider yourselves, maybe not by name this, but um, children of the scientific revolution, or modernists, or the idea that empiricism is king, so what we can kind of touch and taste and see that's how we know things. We can test it. We can hypothesize and test those hypotheses and just know things about ourselves and creation through that. And that's, that's not all bad necessarily. It's a lot of you, and in fact, we're all kind of there in a sense because we're all Westerners. We're, we're children of the Enlightenment, all of us. And a lot of us might consider ourselves postmodern or even post that these days, but I'm speaking to, I know, a broad audience here. But um, those of you, though, who consider yourselves more of that you know, child of modernism, idea. Not all bad necessarily. Science is not evil by any stretch, uh, but there are, are a couple of false presuppositions that kind of serve as a baseline narrative for uh, modernism that can, not all the time, but can constitute the baseline narrative of that uh, world, world view. And the first is, and both of these things, I'm going here because both these things will lead to kind of a, an anti-symbolic way of viewing uh, the world that we have to just be careful with, especially the second one. But the first one, more obviously, is atheistic humanism. So there is no God. There's just material. And so there can't be any symbols because symbols would be things that are, are separate from matter, which is the ultimate reality that would kind of tell us something about it or, or vice versa. So uh, that's one baseline narrative. The other, though, is more Christian. People can be Christians more in this camp where you believe you're in a theistic, involved-in-creation God, but he's more a ruler of the spiritual realm than he is the physical realm. A very common thing for either modernists or kind of kids of modernists or even just Western Christians to just kind of by default operate that way. We, we believe God is spirit and that he created things, but he's more ruler of the, uh, the spiritual realm than he might be uh, the physical realm. If we believe that, uh, and obviously with atheistic humanism, but if we believe this latter thing as well, it's going to be really hard to value symbolism because Symbols are things that point beyond themselves, right, by definition. And so if we have this idea that God is not as involved with, if the things we look at out our window and even our very own beings were part of God's creation and 
events and mountains and prairies and seasons and the animal kingdom and things like that, if, and even just stuff of the Old Testament like we'll talk about today, if we don't have that baseline narrative of God as ruler of both equally, then we're probably going to see physical creations a little bit more of an obstacle between us and God, a little bit more of it's in the way. Really, we're trying to get past it to where God is, and it's not all wrong. Symbols do point beyond the things that are themselves, to things that are greater than they, and so it's good to kind of use the symbol to go past, but if we believe God is not ruler of the physical, then it's going to be really hard to value symbolism in the way that uh, the Bible does. And so Christians then historically have done this. They, they've seen that, they've believed, again, part of our baseline narrative as believers is nothing exists without God. All matter exists because God said so. And so because of that, they're an extension of him. And so everything then, in one way, whether it's obvious or not very obvious at all, whether we find out in our lives or maybe never find out, is some kind of symbol of God. It, it's it's it, it in the world because it's it's part of him, it's an extension of him, it's, it's there like a painting of a, of a great artist that would kind of remind us of the artist's skill or hand. And so what God is doing, and, and I'm, just to bring this down one notch, I'm, I'm going here with some kind of heavy philosophical language, but to bring this back to the Bible, we're, we're going here because we really have to understand these things to understand the Bible. Uh, God exists, uh, but also he is the ruler of the various realms of our reality, physical and, and spiritual. So, like, and this shouldn't be super hard to understand either because we, we see this in great storytelling today. Like a, a writer or a director or a cinematographer would employ the use of uh, color or repetition or foreshadowing in his or her uh, movie or if it's an author to help complement the more obvious storyline, so does God. We do this all the time. And maybe you guys have been thinking of a movie you saw recently how these more subtle suggestions about the main storyline are employed, more literary device type things, like color's a big one I've noticed in recent movies I've seen, but foreshadowing and just uh, circumstantial things. It's, it's God does this as well. God was actually the first one to do it, so everyone else is kind of a plagiarizer, you could say, uh, to a degree. But God does not just state things, he shows things. He wants us to know, but he also wants us to feel and to tell a more comprehensive story through uh, both. He's the God of both realms, like we've talked about, and that includes uh, assigning meaning symbolically to things like places, cities, stones, names, and numbers. So he, he will speak quietly and he'll speak loudly. So just have that in mind, especially if you're new to the Bible. Uh, this is a great way to understand how it hangs together. The Old Testament is full of symbols and the New Testament is full of realities that those symbols point to. And so if we have that framework in mind, it's a lot easier to get through some of those really difficult passages that make up a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Old Testament, some of which uh, we will look at today. So, all right, with all those asides aside, uh, we're going to move on now to, to the answer to the question uh, from two different angles here. And so I'm going to address, address them kind of the way it was asked, but one is, what purpose does giving meaning to places serve? in the Old Testament. So what's going on there just in general? Just I want to presuppose that you're aware of that, or even if you are, to remind you. Secondly, uh, does it continue in the New Testament or not? And the answer to that is kind of, but no. <laughs> so I know, terrible answer, right? But it's, that's, just, that's the answer. Kind of, but not, not really at the same time. So we'll get there in a little bit. But first, the question is, what purpose does giving meaning to places symbolically serve in the Old Testament, the first part of, of the Bible. In short, places on two different scales. So we'll talk about both these. 
the macro and the micro scale, places help teach theological truth to complement what the Bible might be saying more clearly right in that context or elsewhere in the Bible and to ultimately point us to Jesus Christ and him crucified. So on those two scales, just to flush that out a little bit, on, on, the, macro, on the macro scale or macro level, uh, humanity broadly, and this is kind of going back to the very beginning, but Israel specifically in the Old Testament as a microcosm of all of our experiences. So when you read about Israel in the Old Testament, you should see it as a mirror. See them as a mirror, that they're not just a nation that God was working through for a time, for several centuries in uh, the, uh, the old age, but rather uh, as a picture of what we were like with him, how we kind of wrestled with him, how we sinned and ran away and how God pursued all of those things and, and more. So Israel then specifically moves all throughout the Old Testament from places of blessing to places of cursing repeatedly. In fact, it's almost humorous how much, it's just, it's not, the point's not to be funny, but it almost is humorous how much it happens because it's this constant repeated cycle of movements. So there and back again, there and back again. Blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing. God brings them back, they sin, they go away. He brings them back, they sin, and they excommunicate themselves from his presence, but he stays committed. He brings them back yet again. And so they are places of blessing and cursing because God determines them to be as such, but also because he's specially present in those places of blessing. So God is everywhere, but at various points in the Old Testament, he says, I'm specially here in this uh, part of the world, on this uh, chunk of land off the eastern Mediterranean, I'm going to call Canaan or the promised land. And within that, the city of Jerusalem. Within that, this place called the temple I'm asking you to build. Within that, this holy of holies place within the temple that's kind of cubic in form, but this place no one can enter because you're too sinful and I'm too holy. And so kind of like a, like a bullseye, there's these outer rings and inner rings of God's presence geographically in the Old Testament on a macro scale. And God says, I'm identifying them as such to help tell a story. Blessing is where I am. Cursing is where I am not. And so this is really how the whole Old Testament, the whole really, I guess the Old Testament, I was going to say the whole storyline, which is pretty much true as well, including the New Testament. But really the Old Testament goes, just to kind of expose you to this if you haven't heard it before. The storyline goes like this. So back at the very beginning, there's a garden called Eden, and Adam and Eve are there with God. It's a place of blessing. They can see his face and talk to him and be his friend, and there's no sin, no separation, it's euphoric. But they sin against him, they rebel, and all of us with them, because you could say we were inside them, because we came from them. And then they were excommunicated, they were cast out of the garden because of their sin to a place of cursing. But God stayed committed, he identified a man, Abraham, like I mentioned earlier, called him out of his hometown, Ur, and called him to travel across the ancient Near East to a place called Canaan, later called the promised land, but that was a place of blessing. God was giving him land where he was. After that, they, uh, as he has kids, and, the, and Jacob, is re, his grandson, is renamed Israel. They become a nation. They are, uh, through a famine, cast out of Canaan to Egypt, which is a place of cursing because it wasn't the land God was giving them. He was not there with them. They are brought up to the promised land, a place of blessing. They sin. They're cast out through exile to Babylon, a place of cursing. They are brought back 70 years later to the promised land, but it's kind of partial, it's not uh, really complete, and so God promises a greater spiritual return to himself through Jesus Christ. Blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing, Jesus. It's, it's really, it's, that's how the Bible goes. I mean, that's, that's, if you didn't know, and that's just a good way to, to communicate it to yourself or someone else, but if you didn't know that, that's how, part of the Old Testament is trying to say this 
cyclically. It's trying, and God will employ repetition. God's not above literary device. He'll employ repetition to say, this is really important to understand. Our sin has led us away from God, but God pursues and brings back by grace. But it's never fully complete until Jesus comes on the scene, which we'll get to a little bit later. But, but I also mention this because uh, Egypt and Babylon, just uh, the countries, uh, by word, become symbolic later in the story for sin. So sometimes later in the Bible, when the prophets are speaking, even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Egypt and Babylon are used to refer to the whole world as though the church is coming up out of that sinful place, out of that cursed cursed world to where God is. And so Egypt and Babylon are really, we're in that right now uh, in the world. And God is identifying his people in it symbolically. Actually, that word is used in Revelation as well. Symbolically called Egypt, symbolically called uh, Sodom, symbolically called Babylon. And we're being called up out of it as uh, believers to be with God where, where he is. So just an example right within the Old Testament into the New of how Uh, these things don't just happen historically, but they're used symbolically to communicate the same kinds of things elsewhere, but in a more clear manner. The point is sin and redemption over and over again. All right, so that's a macro level. On on the micro level, so smaller stories, and I mentioned Genesis 21 earlier with Abraham covenanting with uh, the king Abimelech, but um, a few other examples that some of these might be a little bit more uh, commonplace to you. You might have heard of some of these. We sang about one earlier. But these are smaller stories that help tell the bigger story. So in Genesis 22, in the land of Moriah, uh, Abraham was told uh, to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God at the last minute stayed his hand and provided a ram to be sacrificed instead of his son. Now, there's a lot to say about that story. We're not going to go into today because we're not preaching on that. But the point is, uh, in that story, it says that Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So it wasn't named that before God provided this ram to die instead of Isaac. He thought his son was going to die, and effectively he was because he was sure he was going to have to kill him. God told him to. It's a lesson there, but he didn't. And so, but because of all of that, Abraham said, this place is now called the Lord will provide because of what's occurred here. So small but very significant story at the same time that reminds us, the point of this is to remind us of other times in the Bible that the Lord provides, even in this precise manner, sacrificially especially, ultimately, in his son Christ, who would be that ultimate sacrificial ram. In 1 Samuel 7, an uh, example of the Lord fighting against one of Israel's kind of principal enemies in the Old Testament, the Philistines, fighting for them. And, and it's a classic way God fights. Uh, it, this is also a repetition employed in the Bible where God will constantly you know, identify a situation or Israel will kind of fall into it. They'll, be, uh, they'll kind of back into it where they'll be under the oppression of another nation, and they're much stronger. They have horses. They have more sophisticated weapons. But God will show up and fight for them, and they'll win. I mean, Israel, literally, at one point, it says they had sticks, and their numbers were just, you know, nothing compared to other nations like the Philistines. But yet they could could compete and fight in as much as they were asking God to do it. When when they tried to fight on their own, they fell. When they asked God to do it miraculously, God did it. And there's a lesson there to say that God saves, we don't. We don't save ourselves by our acts of righteousness, by our works, but God shows up and in spite of our sin, saves. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But anyway, in context here, when, at one point when God saves Israel from the Philistines, he 
he helps them. And Samuel, a prophet, a leader of the day, at that point, sets up a big stone of remembrance called an Ebenezer. We sang about that earlier in one of the, the hymns we sang. An Ebenezer, because Ebenezer means stone of help or rock of help. And so he says there, actually, I'll quote, he, he says, uh, Samuel does, thus far the Lord has helped us. So in as much as they see that rock, future generations will see it and they'll remember what God did right in that spot, specifically that God's a helper. He's a helper. And again, so this is a microcosm of how God helps and fights for us elsewhere in the Bible, especially through his son. And lastly, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 23, uh, King Saul is pursuing David in order to kill him and, and had him cornered at a, at a place called the Hill of Hakalah. But miraculously, as the story goes, a messenger came to tell Saul that the Philistines, again, were raiding the land. And so uh, Saul stopped chasing David to go to attend to the Philistines. But then it says in verse 28 this, Therefore, because all of that happened, that, that God was involved in that kind of helping David get out of this predicament, therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. Which again, it's speaking beyond itself to this greater storyline where God elsewhere helps his people escape from threats. Sometimes just in the nick of time. Especially uh, in, in his son, Jesus Christ. So on the macro and micro levels then, uh, the purpose behind it is to tell a story. The symbols point beyond themselves to, to something greater, ultimately God, who's behind it and uh, leads us ultimately to Christ and and we'll connect some more dots here in a second. But before we get there, the second question then today is, does this continue in the New Testament? Does this uh, practice of naming things in this manner, macro or micro, does that continue? And the answer again is kind of, but no. Kind of, and in that, in that there are places of significance in the early parts of the New Testament before Jesus dies on the cross, like Bethlehem and Nazareth and Jerusalem and Golgotha or Calvary, which is the hill that Jesus died on. Those are important places, and they help tell the story of Christ. But at the same time, those places aren't named for their significance there. Uh, like in those, those last three examples we just looked at, it's a little bit different. Plus, the New Testament does not begin until Jesus dies on a cross. Uh, that's a common thing we, we miss sometimes. We think the New Testament begins at the manger because we have this one white page in our Bibles that says New Testament on it before Matthew 1. But actually, it doesn't. Uh, we should actually move that over. The, the, the New Testament does not begin, the Bible says, until Jesus spills his blood and dies on a cross because that constitutes a new covenant way of God relating to people. Uh, the old, there's an old way. We talked about that last week. I won't go back into that. But this new way that's juxtaposed and it is better is God giving himself, giving his son to die substitutionarily in our place. Without that event or that act happening, there is no New Testament. So Jesus could have been born even into the world, but never died, never established that covenantal relationship with us, then there'd be no New Testament. So the New Testament proper does not begin until the cross and the empty tomb. So all that stuff before that, in other words, you can still kind of classify as lump it on with all this Old Testament stuff that I'm talking about here as well. So with that said, you really do see a pretty abrupt end to this principle of naming places symbolically after Jesus dies on the cross and the New Testament firmly begins. And the reason why, so the big answer to that, because you're going to ask why, why is there a change? What's the significance of that? The big answer is, and I'll just state the obvious here, then I'll go to the specific, but the answer is things do change from Old and New Testament. The Bible is not static. Uh, it is not a random uh, 
prescriptive list of things to do for God. We can't just open our Bibles to every verse and say it's created equal for us because it's not, because it's a story. It's not just precepts and laws, so they kind of help tell that story. It's more about narrative. It's more about the story of Christ. And so because of that, it's alive. It's not static. There's movements biblically from God speaking in many and various place-like ways, or just ways, in the Old Testament to working in a singular way or speaking in a singular way through His Son in the New. Hebrews 1 in the New Testament is great on this. It says, Long ago, speaking of the Old Testament, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, strong conjunction there, in these last days in the New Testament era, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So the big things to notice here is that there's movement from old to new. So the, the many to the singular, uh, the um, small to the large, from shadow to reality, from less clear to more clear, but especially the many to the singular. So there's a variety of ways, and I, I would and I'm mention this today because we're on the topic of symbolism, many clear non-symbolic ways, but many symbolic ways that God's speaking to people in the old. But in the new, things change. It's different. He's not speaking as, he's speaking more clearly. He's not speaking as symbolically. There's mysteries here that get solved or revealed later on. And and Jesus makes clear what might be foggy earlier in the story. So things change. So the significance of places then, geographically, and their symbolic meanings on both scales, macro and micro, help tell the story that finds its climax in Christ. But now that he's here, that's the key. Now that Jesus is here, geographical places take on less significance and he takes on more significance. Jesus is the ultimate Moriah, the place of God's provision. He's the ultimate Ebenezer, the place of God's help. He's the ultimate hill of Hakalah, the ultimate place of escape from sin for us who believe. Those places and themes alone in the Old Testament uh, are singular and kind of foggy, but when you connect them with Christ, and all these things are what The Bible says in the New Testament about Jesus. He, on the cross, made a way of escape from sin for us. He provided. He manifested the fact that God is a helper of those who cry out to him for for deliverance. Christ completes them in that regard. Uh, On the macro scale, uh, one uh, good place to see this principle come up is when Christ, hours before his death, is washing his disciples' feet. So this is at the Last Supper. John 13 tells the story that other synoptics don't, but... Uh, Jesus washes his disciples' feet hours before his death, and Peter says at that point, as you might expect, one of his disciples, he says, you're going to wash my feet? I should wash your feet. You'll never wash my feet. You're the Lord. I am the servant. I'm I'm the lesser one here. And Jesus' response is so theologically important to understand this. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. That preaches just unto itself, right? I mean, if, if Jesus doesn't help you. If you don't allow him to become the servant to you, you are not saved. You have no share in salvation, no share in God. We have, this is the gospel. God has, even though he didn't have to, he has become beneath us to save us, to serve us in, in this manner. But anyway, I digress. What I'm, what I'm really trying to say here is uh, the word share in John 13, when, when Jesus says, you have no share in me, the, the Greek word there is meros, which is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the share of land that Israel received when coming up out of Egypt into 
the promised land, which then becomes kind of this linguistic nod to the idea then that Jesus is not just the way back to God, he is the place of blessing himself. He is the new land. Uh, physical land has no more significance in the world. Uh, the, the Israel, the nation, currently uh, has th- that chunk of land off the eastern Mediterranean is not significant anymore. Jesus is. He is the land. He is the place. He's the way back to God, and he is the place of, of ultimate blessing. He's saying, when I wash you, when I die for you, you have a share in the figurative land of blessing that I am for you, the very presence of God himself. And we don't just know that here from one you know, Greek word used in the, the New and Old Testament, but on a macro scale as well. Remember that timeline I showed you earlier with uh, Israel and, and the world? We've been, they've been waiting for a return to the land. They were in exile in Babylon when the prophets predicted these things. And though they were, did return physically to the land, the Bible is clear to say that it was very partial and, and disillusioning, incomplete. They sin almost immediately. At that point in the story, you're like, are you kidding Like 70 years, they're brought back for the umpteenth time and they immediately start to rebel against God. They can't keep his laws. They start to intermarry, which they weren't supposed to do. They don't keep the Passover. All these things that the laws call Israel to do in the Old Testament setting, they fail to. And so there's this disillusioning, partial, incomplete, full of sin. This can't be the ultimate return moment for Israel and for the readers. For those of us who are reading this narratively saying, I know, God, you're in this, but this can't be it. This can't be the full manifestation of getting back to you because it's, sin is still a player in this story and it's causing existing separation between people and you. So what that did then is it set the stage for a promise, which the Old Testament makes constantly, of a greater type of spiritual return, those things that the symbols beforehand pointed ahead to, Jesus being that ultimate land of God's, uh, of God's blessing. So he would come then and accomplish that in a, in a much greater way. A return to God. So really then, this bottom line here, Jesus is making a way back to God, but he's that reality behind which the symbols of place, geography, and all those etymologies and land pointed ahead to. So again, symbol, foggy, to reality, Jesus, much more clear. And so you're seeing that play out in a macro scale too. In fact, even in the Old Testament, in Psalm 73, 26, it's, it, even here, it's being acknowledged. So it was never about the symbols, always about the realities behind them. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my, same idea, same word actually is share, he's my portion. He's my portion in the land, God himself uh, forever. He's more important than the land itself. And so this, this is, what this does then is it changes the way we think about location uh, as well. One more verse, interacting with Christ and someone else in the New Testament. Jesus interacts with a woman, a Samaritan woman, in John 4, and it says, uh, Sir, this is a woman speaking, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, this is the key, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Lots to say here, but just note the simple. Jesus is saying, used to be mountains, used to be Jerusalem, used to be a temple, not anymore. 
Now it's in spirit and in truth, which is an idiom just for himself. See the difference? Not saying that it was bad in the old, it was just a symbol, that, that times have changed, it's become more cosmic. Now it's for all. Now it's for Jew and Gentile. Now it's in spirit, wherever you are, it's decentralized. It's by what the Spirit does. The Spirit saves us from our sins. It's in truth. Who's the truth biblically? Who calls himself the truth? Jesus, right? When Jesus says worship in truth, he's saying worship in me. Because definitionally, right here in the Gospel of John, he says there's no such thing as truth aside from him. So worship in me. Worship in what I've done for you on the cross. So not about place anymore. It's about, about Jesus. We've moved on from the symbols to the realities. And then 1 Peter 2.9, lastly, But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just noting here that the church is called the holy nation of God. So uh, one of the principles here then we derive is that now in this era we live in, all places are sacred to a degree. Uh, there, there's no more uh, sacredness uh, isolated to a particular building or city or nation or region or land. Now the reality has come. Jesus has come. He's the goal of all that. So now whoever believes and clings to Christ, he or she is sacred. And wherever a church gathers in the name of Christ, now we, Hiawatha Church, are the nation of God. We are the true Israel. We are the true chosen ones. We are the true holy place where he resides. This is what the Bible teaches. And now we worship in spirit we worship in truth, and we don't look anywhere else. We don't centralize. We don't bow down to Jerusalem and, and pray, right? It's not, it's not geographically identified anymore. We actually look inward. We look to our people, our friends, our brothers and sisters. Look to the Bible. Look, we look to the Spirit and to the Christ, and we worship in spirit and, and in truth. All right, a couple things to wrap up here then with, and one is kind of a teaching thing. One is a preaching moment here, but, or a, pre, a preaching aspect in general, we need to note this movement in the biblical storyline from place to Jesus. Location is not arbitrary. When you read these kinds of things in the, you know, these, these symbols, these geographical etymologies in the Old Testament, ask yourself, how does this help tell the immediate theological story, but especially the broader theological story? You will greatly, you'll much more understand your Bible if you ask yourself those questions uh, when you come across them. Don't skip over them. Ask yourself, what do they tell me about Jesus ahead of time? Whether it's a name place that reminds the gospel in a particular way or on that macro level, uh, understanding those things on the broader scale, uh, Christ is the one who deals with separation between us and him. He ends it and he, he brings us back. So, though God formerly spoke in symbolic place name kinds of ways, he's now speaking in his son. So just understand it that way. It does not mean to be clear that symbolism ceases. It just keeps pointing us onward. It means that now we're effectively at the Grand Canyon and we're just looking a little bit less at the postcard or the pictures or the encouragement from a friend that got us there in the first place. See the difference? I mean, how silly would it be to stand at the Grand Canyon and stay in our hotel room and look at the pictures of the Grand Canyon? Get out of your hotel room. Look at the Grand Canyon, Right? So it, it just means that the symbols keep doing their job, pointing us this way. We keep reading them into the storyline, but all this means now on this side of the cross is that we, we focus on them less for the sake of the one that fulfilled it. We're at the Grand Canyon, you guys. So focus on Jesus, not on, don't worship the symbols. Read them uh, and 
understand them as a way God is speaking, but look ultimately this new way God is speaking, which is a singular manner in his son. So he wants us to know these things. He wants us to know he's the Moriah, he's the Ebenezer, he's the hill of Hakala, he's the way of escape, he's the one who washes our feet and brings us back to the, the share of himself, the land of himself. And he wants us to know also, I think, in all of that, what the gospel is not. It's one of the cool things you get when you do the hard work of reading these things in the Bible is is you start to not just see what the gospel is. You start to see what the gospel is not. Uh, The gospel is not, if we kind of almost filter it through this motif of geography and place and and, uh, geographical etymologies and so forth. The gospel is not find the place of God's blessing and travel there. The Bible never, ever says that. Not once. Because we, don't have, we never find it. God never says, I'm over here somewhere, grope around in the darkness until you, you find me, you feel me, and then maybe I'll kind of let you in to have a share in myself. You never see it. Uh, the, it's, it's actually the, the false gospel. If you guys have read uh, Paul, Bun- or Paul Bunyan's, such a Minnesotan. Uh, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Small difference. But... Um, some of you guys, it's actually, it's actually a great book. I'd recommend it. Uh, I love it uh, for a number of reasons. But if you've read that book, guy who's just trudging through all this stuff throughout his life and almost just risks kind of falling away from God and about a billion times in his life before he finally makes it, end of his journey to find God. It's one of those things where at the end, you almost wish he'd turn around and see, oh, it was God carrying me this whole time. But he, he never does. It's one of those false gospel uh, threads of that book that is actually not biblical. It's, it's that's not a good depiction in one sense of the Christian journey. In other ways, it, kind of, it really is, but in that sense, it's not. Because the Bible never says, do that. The Bible never says, do a pilgrim's progress. Never. You never get that exhortation. What you see, rather, is you are in, this, this is a statement, you are in a place of cursing. You are in Babylon. You are in Egypt. You are in Ur. You're dead. You're lost. You have no idea where you are. Absolutely no idea. That's what lost means. We've almost got to reclaim that word a bit, right, as Christians, because we use that word a lot. But think about what that means. When you say you're lost spiritually, it means you have absolutely no idea where you are. No idea. <laughs> we're clueless, right? We need someone to find us. We're, we're way too lost to find our way out of the maze of sin. So the gospel says God has found us in Egypt, like he found his people earlier in Egypt. It says he's found us in Babylon, like he went and got his people in Babylon in the Old Testament. He has died for our sins. He's brought us back to the land of, of himself. In fact, in every, and I'll, I'll read this to uh, begin to wrap things up here. In every single biblical instance of people returning to God in the Bible, whether it's from Ur, that was Abraham's hometown, Egypt, Babylon, etc., there are many others on a micro scale, it is God who brings people to himself, not the other way around. God finds, even when people aren't looking for him, God calls, God makes a way by grace when there seems to be no way. The cross is the ultimate manifestation of this grace. We are saved not by what we do, not by impressing God, not by finding God, not by spiritual performance, but by his relentless love and grace that is greater than any physical distance. This is the gospel. Ask yourselves that when you read these stories. When does Israel get back to the land of blessing themselves? Ever. Ever in the Old Testament. None. Right? Zero. Not even close. It's always God, in spite of their sin, going to find them and bringing them back. Right? Expressing kindness and patience to them. 
It's the same with you and me in this New Testament era. Christ is the way back. He offers himself as a gift to us to be saved through. He says, I'll die so you don't have to. I'll pay your debt. I'll be nailed to a tree because I love you. If you believe in me, if you, if you look to me, what's behind that, what, the, what narrative is behind that is God coming to soften your heart that you might receive him and not be full of yourself anymore, but be full of God. We have to fight that propensity we all have to think that we're better than we actually are, to think that we have more spiritual capability than we actually do. No one in the room or who has ever lived, ever, has had the spiritual potential within them to get from Babylon back to the promised land. It's never ha- didn't happen for Israel, so how dare we think it could happen for us? How dare we think that? We, we think way too highly of ourselves. It's only God who returns people to himself. This is what makes Christianity distinct from other religions. It's only, it's only God. It's him coming down and dying on a cross rather than us climbing that ladder. It's him making it possible. It's him causing us. Bible uses the word cause. He causes us into this because we're too dead to make that journey ourselves. So in every biblical macro instance, in Moriah, Ebenezer, Hakala, the point of all those stories is God did it, right? Not people. In John 13, Jesus says, unless I wash you, he's saying the same thing. Unless I do this, you won't be saved. So it's not just these things get us to Christ from that graph earlier. They do. They get us to a particular aspect of who he was. He was the son of God who fulfilled the old, but who expressed grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. He saves you. He loves you. He brought you back. You didn't. He found you. See, when you think this way, all of a sudden you start to love him a little bit more and appreciate him more, right? You're less fearful about what the future holds because what can you lose if God gave it? It's not by performance. Uh, God gives you salvation as, as a gift. We simply, we simply receive. So with that said, let me pray and we'll respond with a couple of songs. God, thank you for, uh, so much for this question and, and more importantly for the gospel that's embedded uh, in the question. The theme, the motif of place and geography is not arbitrary. Something that you have uh, put into the storyline and really all kinds of scales, macro and micro. Uh, it's all over the place to help tell this story of separation, excommunication from you, rebellion against you, and yet how patient you were and how much you are constantly, constantly, constantly bringing people back. Though it was cyclical in the Old Testament, it didn't quite work, and that's, there's a variety of reasons for that, uh, that the scriptures tell us. They were all pointing ahead, nevertheless, to the final one of those. Because Jesus does not come many times to bring us back. He comes once. He's this singular, salvific idea and reality and sacrificial lamb in the New Testament. He only saves once because he only has to once. We are returned forever to you if we simply reach out our hand and believe and say, just capture me, protect me, give me a way of escape, a rock of escape here. Be my Mariah. Uh, Provide for me salvation. Be my Ebenezer. Help me out of the sin condition I am in because all my good works for the rest of my life, as perfect as I could be, uh, would not be enough. Uh, It's only you. So God bless us here. Help us to respond in gladness, uh, wherever we are spiritually today, to respond in thankfulness and gladness and uh, to leave here just more grateful uh, that you have chased us down and found us. We have not found you. Uh, The latter just being not a very happy thought, (laughs) not a bad thought. Not a very joyful one, uh, but a much more joyful one to think that, our, that my God loves me to that end, that he has given me a share in himself uh, through the sacrifice of his son. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Amen.